Our scripture reading today. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 44, 1 to 8. In this passage, Yahweh, Israel's God, declares himself as their king and redeemer, the first and the last, calling his people to fearless faith. In Revelations today, we will hear the same God speak a similar message to his people. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. He will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still, others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And you know, before we uh, get into the sermon, I just want to thank Brad and his team for leading us today. And all um, the worship teams this fall uh, have been so, um, we, we took a challenge kind of among ourselves that we would really drink in the revelation and and try to worship out of the context of, of the revelation. And, and it's just so evident with the songs that are being chosen and the way that Things are being pulled together that our worship leaders are doing just that. And uh, I, I think all of us, as we connect more into the revelation, we'll, we'll grow in, in that. And, and it's just beautiful. This is a number of times today uh, thinking, of, wow, how, what a great connection that is to the revelation. So thank you. Thank you for that. Well, happy Thanksgiving to all of you, and I, I do want to welcome you. My name is Tom, if we haven't met, and to welcome you here. And, and you may be visiting uh, here today uh, in from out of town, and we're just we're thankful that you're here and uh, thankful that we have this Thanksgiving together. Um, we're a month in to a new series. We've been going through the book of Revelation. And <laughs> for those of you stumbling in here on this weekend, you're thinking, oh, great. I, I came to hear a Thanksgiving sermon, and I'm going to hear a a sermon of the book of Revelation. Well, I hope it's encouraging to you. For those of you who've been tracking with our series, uh, maybe you've missed uh, one or two messages. I encourage you to, to catch up. In this last week, um, our connect groups got off the ground. And uh, a whole bunch of us were meeting across uh, during the week, different times. And uh, from all the reports I've been hearing and from our own experience at our group, uh, we are off to a great start, and uh, lots of us gathering to, to connect with each other, but also to, to listen more deeply and uh, discover what God is speaking to us through, through this amazing book of Revelation. Now, you do have, we're allowing the window to stay open just a touch longer. If you're here today and you've been dragging your heels, or maybe you just heard about it for the first time and you'd like to get in on a connect group, there's a few more that still have openings. And so if you... Um, decided uh, today, yes, I will do this. I will get into Connect Group. You're not too late. And so I want to invite you today to talk to, I'm going to say Mimi, give a wave, Mimi. Talk to Mimi about that, and we will get you into a group, uh, and you can track along. It'll really amp up your experience. It is amping up our experience in the book of Revelation, so we encourage you to do that. Well, here's our challenge for today. It's Thanksgiving Sunday, and we're thankful for a lot of different things, right? We're thankful for family, thankful for the beautiful valley we live in, uh, thankful for all the good gifts that God has given to us. Thankful for pumpkin pie. Yeah, I heard a name. There we go. Excellent. So it's Thanksgiving Sunday. But our Revelation passage today is all about suffering. Yeah, that was exactly what I thought. 
when it dawned on me on, you know, Monday. Um, how are we going to bring that together? The question I'm asking today is, can we be thankful in the middle of suffering? Here we are on Thanksgiving Sunday. The passage is on suffering. Can we bring this together? It's a pretty thought-provoking question. It's thought-provoking for me. And that's where we're going to go today. Can we be thankful in the middle of suffering? But let's play a little catch-up first. This whole letter of Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia, modern Turkey. And after uh, some introductions and a big opening vision of Jesus, uh, Jesus takes time to kind of personalize this big letter by pinning a little memo, if you could say, to each one of these seven churches. Effectively personalizing the whole letter and kind of applying it to their particular church situation. Because each of these churches, when they would gather for worship, they would hear this letter read to them. And they would also hear the personal memo that Jesus wrote to them. You know, think of the Christians who are sitting in, well, today, Smyrna, Last week, Ephesus. Think of them, and and they're they're hearing the whole letter, which is written to them, but then they hear this personal note to to them. But guess what? They also get to hear the personal notes written to everyone else, too. So it makes it kind of interesting. Which also connects with us, right? Because we get to listen to those personal memos. Last week, we heard Jesus' words to the Ephesian church, who were doing so many great things, and living in so many great ways, and yet had lost their first love, and as a result, were in danger of losing everything. And we had, a, we had a good discussion in our connect group about that, and I know others of you did. Today, Jesus delivers his second, the second of his seven messages, his message to the church in Smyrna. And this church in Smyrna, as we will hear, are getting hammered for their faith in Jesus. Now, Smyrna was quite a city. Uh, it was filthy rich. Uh, deeply religious, worshipping many, many different gods. And on top of that, these Smyrnans were wildly patriotic. They were huge fans of Rome. If Rome had a color, whatever it was, they wore it. You know, one of those, those folks. And, and they were wildly supportive of Rome, wildly supportive of Caesar. They worshipped Rome as a goddess, and they worshipped Caesar as a god. In fact, they led the whole region in emperor worship, and had been doing so uh, for many years. The Smyrnans had a very high opinion of themselves as a city. They always kind of saw themselves, you know, the the insecure country, let's say, or or the insecure city that always sort of sees itself in comparison to the other city that's probably bigger and better. Uh, And so they always sort of saw themselves and were pretty sensitive about their rivalry with Ephesus. They thought of themselves, though, as being a lot better. They called themselves the flower of Asia, or the crown of Asia. Of Asia. They even stamped in their coins these words, first city of Asia in size and beauty. I love that. They're not shy. Smyrna was the birthplace of Homer. The guy who wrote the Iliad and Odyssey, not Simpson. <laughs> it was the birthplace of other famous writers as well. Then, interesting history Smyrna had been destroyed in about 580 BC, before Christ. And it lay in ruins for about 300 years, and then it was rebuilt. And upon its rebuilding, it flourished. And the people of Smyrna kind of liked that part of their story. The fact that they had, had laid dead and, and, in essence, had, had risen out of the ashes. We don't have a record of who or when the church in Smyrna began. Uh, we kind of assume that maybe Paul or some of his, uh, maybe Christians from the Ephesian church had something to do with it, but we don't really know. All we know is that by the time the Revelation was written, these Smyrna Christians were following Jesus faithfully under the crushing pressure of both political and religious persecution. Smyrna was a dangerous place to follow Jesus. And so here at the start of Revelation, Jesus has a word for these suffering Christians. Let's get into it. Uh, On an insert in your bulletin, there's the text for today. You can follow along on that. On the front of some of your uh, pews, there's Bibles. And uh, if you know, maybe a friend has one, maybe got on your phone. But I do encourage you to follow along because it won't be, not all of it will be on the screen. Some of it will be. So here it is. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, that, that's how Jesus has started each one of these addresses, like he's writing to the angel. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Remember, right at the beginning of each of the seven messages, Jesus will identify himself in some way that connects back to the original 
apocalypse. Remember we talked about what apocalypse means? It's not something bad or terrible. It's more like the pulling back of a curtain, right? That the apocalypse of Jesus Christ pulls back the curtain so that they are able to see him for who he truly is. They're able to see what's going on in the world. They're able to understand from God's perspective what's happening to them. The apocalypse pulls back the curtain. And back in chapter 1, the apocalypse pulls of Jesus Christ pulls back the curtain and they're able to see Jesus. And it's this vision, this opening vision of who Jesus is that then connects to each of these messages. Right at the very start of each message, Jesus will usually pick something from that original vision to connect to them. Well, in this case, Jesus highlights two important truths about who he is. And it's important to see that connection as he then speaks to these suffering Christians. The first thing Jesus does is identifies himself as God. Jesus calls himself the first and the last, a title that's only used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. Why does Jesus say that? Well, he wants these Christians to know that their God, their Lord, has not forgotten them in their suffering. No. They feel like that, right? You can feel like that when you're suffering. You can feel like God forgot about you, isn't aware. You know, he somehow is over there in the church of Ephesus or over there in that mega church, but he has forgotten about us little guys over here and we're just dying. But here, the message is, no, God is here. God is present. God is speaking. I'm here. And what's more, I think, Jesus uses this title, the first and the last, to, to signal to them that your life, the difficulty you're experiencing, is bracketed by my life. I was there at the start. I'll be there at the end. I am with you. Whatever you're going through, I'm present. And when we're suffering, isn't that what we need to know? When we're experiencing difficulty, I know some of you need to hear that today. Some of you who might be in a difficult spot, that Jesus, the first and the last, isn't somehow clueless to what you're going through. He isn't removed from your struggle. That he knows and he's present. And he's, he's present, as we've already talked about, right in the middle of our mess. But then Jesus goes on. He's not just the first and the last, he's also the risen one. And I love what Jesus does here because he, he seamlessly links his divinity with his humanity. In Jesus, God and humanity are one. And in, in one little phrase, we hear the whole good news stories of Jesus. The whole, the whole story of the Bible summarized in this little phrase when Jesus says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. Isn't that amazing? The first and the last. This is the God of the universe. The God who created everything. The God of all history. The God who is immensely wise and eternal. Who knows everything. Who has all this love to give, this amazingly creative and powerful God. He became one of us, human, with an address, with a hair color, in a particular place, in a particular time, living the perfect life that we couldn't live and dying in our place and rising again from the dead. This is amazing. Right here in this little phrase, that God, who is the first, was now the first to be raised from the dead. That God, who is the last, destroys the last enemy of death. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, I start to feel some thankfulness coming on, you know? I think these guys were too. Can you imagine how these beaten down, rejected, worn out group of Christians felt hearing these opening words from Jesus? Already, I think, right here at the start, they're beginning to feel His courage coursing through their veins. When we realize that God is here, that the curtain has been pulled back, that He's present in the midst of our suffering. And not just any God, but the God who was the first and the last, and the God who came through death and rose to life. And when we come to understand that, our fear begins to fade. So what did Jesus go on to say to these guys? He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. That's Jesus' perspective on them. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are tough times for these Smyrna Christians. The word afflictions here is, is often translated tribulation, and it's best described as a crushing pressure. Those of you who've been caught under a skidoo sometime in deep snow know what I'm talking about. It's like a big rock that's been rolled on top of you, and you can't breathe from the crushing pressure. It's squeezing the very life out of you. It's the kind of uh, feeling, the, the experience they're having, these afflictions that Jesus... And, and, and then their poverty. 
These Christians are in the economic toilet because they have been faithful to Jesus. They're not poor because there's been an economic downturn. They're not poor because they've been playing the markets and they screwed up. They're not poor because somehow, um, you know, I made a bad business deal. They're poor because they've been faithful to Jesus. And their faithfulness to Jesus means they're not going to worship the emperor like everyone else does. And as a result of that, they're seen as disloyal. And people refuse to do business with them. Uh, they're, they're passed over for opportunities. People don't come to them with jobs. These Christians are suffering and are experiencing financial hardship because they've been faithful to Jesus. And then on top of that, a religious community that should have been more merciful and supportive of them, people of the Jewish faith, and, and the, the Christian church has always been a mixed bag of, of Jews and Gentiles, but this particular group had turned on them and were actually intensifying their persecution. They were adding to it. So times were tough, and Jesus knows it. And more than that, he wants them to know that he knows it. And not only that he knows it, but that he actually sees their situation and their, their difficulty from a very different perspective. This is part of pulling back the curtain and the purpose of the book of Revelation is designed to help faithful Christians who are struggling or wrestling or on the edge of compromise to see as the curtain is pulled back the truth of their situation so that they can continue to be faithful. Jesus doesn't see these faithful Christians as impoverished at all. He sees them as rich, as abundant. Which, you know, when you put that on the ground, you think, sometimes that's really hard to believe, right? I mean, that'd be hard to believe if you're having trouble feeding your kids. It'd be hard to, it'd be hard to really summon up the, the I don't know, the, the, the courage to be able to re-envision your situation as abundance when you can't find work, when you're getting slandered. But Jesus wants them to know that things as they were are not as they seem. And if they will let him pull the curtain back, they'll begin to see differently. Well, what does Jesus say next? After he says he knows you know, how rough things are. What does he say next? I know what I want him to say. I want him to say things like, I know you've been suffering and I'm here to do something about it. Right? Uh, how about this one? I can hear the slanderous things they're saying about you and now watch them while I shut them up. That's what I want Jesus to say. I know about all the tough things. I know how that's been, but don't worry. Everything's going to be better now. Isn't that what you want Jesus to say when you're in trouble? When you're suffering? It's what I want to hear. When I'm taking heat for following Jesus, I want Jesus to come and make it all better. That's what I want. When I've been faithful, I've done the right thing, this is what I want Jesus to say to me. But that's not, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus, who defeated death and rose again, the first and the last, who knows all about their suffering, tells his faithful people, yeah, more suffering's coming. Listen to what Jesus has to say next. He says, this is verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Did you hear that? Jesus tells them not to be afraid because more suffering is coming. Or at least don't be afraid and more suffering is coming. What? That's why I get afraid. Isn't that why you get afraid? Sometimes it's the prospect of suffering that scares me more. Isn't that a reason to be afraid? How can Jesus say that to them? I think there's at least two reasons. The first one pulls us back to the original apocalypse, right there at the end of chapter 1, the second half of of chapter 1, when this curtain is pulled back. Remember that part? Uh, John has fallen down like a dead man in front of Jesus, and Jesus reaches over and touches his shoulder and says these words, Do not be afraid. And now, and, then, and I'm going to read what, what it says in chapter 1, but I want you to hear how close this is to what Jesus is saying to these Smyrna Christians today. So Jesus says, do not be afraid. And then he says to John, who's on the ground at this point, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Jesus tells these Smyrna Christians to not be afraid, Because he, the living one, the first and the last, is going to go with them through their suffering and he is going to bring them out of death 
into resurrection life, not hurt at all by the second death. And he wants them, in the midst of that, to have that curtain pulled back, to have that apocalyptic vision of Jesus, to not be afraid because they can look and see who's present right there with them. There'll be a little more on this come. The second reason Jesus tells them to not be afraid is that even if they die, they won't lose the war. Even if they lose their lives, it'll be okay. I mean, what? This war metaphor might be surprising to you to hear that. But that's what's going on here. Jesus wants these Christians to be able to interpret their suffering, their struggle, in light of an ongoing war that Satan is waging against God's people. He wants them to understand that behind all the political pressure they're experiencing, that behind all the religious fanaticism that's causing them such problems, stands the devil himself, attempting to destroy them, to derail them, to get them to cave in and compromise and quit. And this is a very significant theme through the book of Revelation. And we're going to come back to this war multiple times, but in particular in chapter 12, where we're given this amazing picture of a great dragon, Satan, being hurled down from heaven and then going off to make war on the faithful people of God. Jesus wants these Smyrna Christians to know what it is that's happening to them. He wants to pull back the curtain so they can understand who their true enemy is and it's going to give them cues even as they hear the whole letter of Revelation. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Be faithful even to the point of death. Now, I have to ask, how can Jesus say that to you? How can Jesus say that to us? Be faithful even to the point where you will experience great pain. Be faithful even to the point where you will lose your job. Be faithful even to the point where you will... Um, you know, lose friends. Be faithful when it's really, really uncomfortable. We do not. I don't like a Jesus that says that to me. Do you? This is tough stuff. How can Jesus say that to us? How can he tell these guys, be faithful even to the point of death? The only reason he can say that is because Jesus has promised to be faithful beyond the point of death. We may die. We all will die. But we may die in particular, or we may suffer in particular, because we've been faithful and had allegiance to Jesus. But Jesus, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life, is faithful to raise us again from death and bring us new resurrection life. Now, this message is super relevant to today, isn't it? I mean, let's start with us. Some of you, I know, have suffered because you have been faithful to Jesus. You have suffered for your allegiance to Christ. Maybe you've suffered in a marriage where your faithfulness to Jesus has caused daily strain as your priorities of following Jesus have come into conflict with priorities of your spouse. Others of you have suffered because you've been faithful to Jesus and and maintained integrity in a business dealing or at work or at school. And as a result of your integrity, of your faithfulness and your allegiance to Jesus, you've been ridiculed. You've been no longer part of the cool kids crowd. Or you've been rejected by workmates. I know some of you who have experienced rejection by a boyfriend or a girlfriend who said, we don't need to be married. Let's just sleep together. It's way more fun. Let's try it out. And you said, no, I want to be faithful to Jesus with my sexuality, and so I'm going to wait till I'm married, and you know what? They didn't want to wait for you. So they moved on to someone else, and that hurt. And you suffered because of your allegiance to Christ. Others, you suffered because you've been faithful to generously serve others, and it hasn't gone well for you. Or maybe you've been faithfully pursuing God's call in your life, but you faced opposition. Well, when we suffer for faithfulness, and I, I know some of us have, we can be thankful that Jesus has promised to be with us and to bring us through it. But many of us, let's be honest, we're here today, Thanksgiving Sunday in Canada. Many of us, most of us, don't face the kind of overt persecution for our our allegiance to Christ that other Christians do. In recent news, we've seen followers of Jesus in areas of the world that had to live out this suffering, have had to be faithful even to the point of death. 
Reports have been horrendous, and I know you've heard some of them. One story that was being reported this week was a story from late in August when 12 Christians were faithful, even to the point of death, as ISIS militants tried to force them to renounce their faith in Jesus. Christian women were raped, little boys were tortured, some were crucified, others were beheaded, and they were all killed. There were modern-day Smyrnans, faithful to Jesus, even to the point of death. Eyewitness reports said that the women prayed and knelt before these militants. Uh, Some villagers said they were praying in the name of Jesus. Others said they were praying the Lord's Prayer. Others said some of them lifted their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus. One of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said the name Jesus. The bodies of those killed were hung on crosses for display reflective of, of Christ's crucifixion. You know, just a couple days ago, I received an email, a prayer email. Some of you may have got it as well. A prayer request from some missionaries in northern Iraq. And uh, it was sent out as an as a, a appeal to the church to pray. And I thought, you know, I'm, a, I'm just going to rattle this off to you because we, we want to be praying. But it, it, it illustrates also the reality of being faithful, even to the point of death. This is a prayer request from Dan Marilyn Wilson. Uh, missionaries who are in areas that are being attacked by ISIS, and they're asking uh, for prayer. Um, ISIS has taken over the town they're in today. Um, Dan said ISIS is systematically going from house to house to, co- to all the Christians and asking the children to denounce Jesus. And so far, not one child has. And they were all killed. All these children were killed. But not the parents at this point. The UN has withdrawn, and missionaries are on their own. Uh, they've determined to stick it out for the sake of the families, even if it means their own deaths. They're very afraid, have no idea how to even begin ministering to families who've seen their own children martyred for their faith in Jesus. Yet he says he, he knows God has called them for some reason to be his voice in his hands at this place at this time. Even so, they're begging for prayers, for courage to live out their vocation in such dire circumstances and like the children to accept martyrdom if they are called to do so. One missionary was able to talk briefly on the phone and, and uh, in a note at the end it says that they lost a certain city. It, it, it fell to ISIS and there. Uh, it's just terrible stuff happening and just asking for, for prayer. I heard another story this week on YouTube, a story of Sharia suffering in India, in Pakistan actually, for again, faith to Jesus and the way their whole family has suffered because of their allegiance, of their association, their identification, and their allegiance to Jesus. And even this last week, uh, in the tragic shooting in Oregon, there were stories of those killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. This is crazy stuff, right? But this is happening now in the world. Christians, brothers and sisters, modern-day Smyrnans. And the question I have to ask is, how, how can we do this? How can we face this suffering without compromising Well, the only way we can do it, the only way our brothers and sisters can do it, is when we know that Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. That's the only way we can face this, that Jesus, when we know that Jesus, the living one, the first and the last, who has promised to bring us through this war victorious, that he is present in the midst of that suffering. He is present in the midst of that persecution. He is present in Pakistan. He is present in northern Iraq. He is with them. And is saying to them, be faithful even to the point of death because I am faithful beyond the point of death and I have promised to bring you through into resurrection. That's the message that Jesus is giving these Christians. It's the message he's giving us. Now, not all of us, obviously, maybe none of us here, will face that kind of stark choice. But I think two things. One, of us, one, I think we're called to pray for those who are, to be aware and mindful that we often live in a bubble where the most we can expect is to maybe have a socially awkward situation. And there are Christians who are facing literal death, or I think even worse, the death of their own children for their allegiance to Jesus. So we need to pray. But also to recognize that each one of us, when we choose to be faithful to Jesus in our families and in our work and in our witness, in our valley, that we will face pushback. That you will face pushback from the enemy. 
opposition of the evil one who seeks to dissuade us and distract us, to destroy our life in Christ, to upset and sideline the church and our mission. But Jesus calls us to be faithful, whatever the cost, because he is faithful to bring us through. Now, there's, there's a lot we can say about this passage. I know that. And in a moment, we are going to throw it open for a few minutes of, of Q&A or discussion. If you want to add to this or if there's stuff I glossed over, uh, feel free to come back to that. But I want to circle back to that first question. How can we be thankful in the middle of suffering? And I want to highlight at least three things. That when we suffer for Jesus, both in a, you know, maybe less overt way, but also as we consider our Christian brothers and sisters who suffer very directly, there's at least three ways. I think when we suffer for Jesus, we can be thankful that Jesus knows. That he actually knows the reality of our suffering. That he knows what's going on in our lives. He knows what's happening in these families and in these regions of the world where people are experiencing overt persecution, where they're dying for their faith. He knows what's going on in your marriage. He knows what's going on in your school. He knows the dynamics. Like he really knows. He's not blinded to it. Because we can feel like he does not understand what's going on. He, does, he wouldn't ask me to be that faithful. He wouldn't ask me to do that if he really knew what was going on. And Jesus does. He knows exactly what's going on. So when he looks you in the eyes, he says, be faithful even to the point of death. He knows what he's asking. He knows what kind of suffering that could inflict in your life. He knows it. He's present right in the midst. He knows the reality that you're facing. And he calls you to be faithful, promising. No, I won't make everything better, but in the end, I will make all things new. That's the promise. So we're thankful that Jesus knows. He's not ignorant, blind, off on vacation. He knows. Second, we can be thankful that Jesus rose. That he rose from the dead after his faithful suffering. The resurrection of Jesus who became one of us, who died in our place, the first and the last, rising again in victory, is the single most important event in all of history. There's, I, you know, here we are on Thanksgiving weekend. There is nothing we can be more thankful for than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you aren't sure about the resurrection, if you're, you know, you just kind of stumbled in here with family today, and I totally respect that, glad to have you. But the resurrection thing is, a, is mumbo-jumbo, a myth, whatever for you, or you've just kind of danced around the edge and you've never really asked the question. You kind of like coming to church, like the song, but you've never really asked, do I believe that Jesus actually died and rose again from the dead? I got I'm just going to talk to you directly. I appeal to you. It matters what you think about this. It matters whether this is true or not. You owe it to yourself. In fact, there's nothing you owe to yourself more than actually digging in and doing some research. Like, do some reading. Find out about this. What could it hurt? If in the end you still think it's bunk, then at least you've done your duty. But you owe it to yourself to dig in. And I want to suggest, uh, for those of you that might be on the edge or not sure or trying to explore this, there's a great book. We even have one for sale back there, but get it off Amazon. That's just that cost. Same, same thing. Uh, get it at your local bookstore. Um, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And he's a, he was an atheist. He was a journalist. Uh, in Chicago, and he began a journey of trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And he just tells his story. And I encourage you to do that. If you're kind of on the edge, you're not sure. Dig into that. Read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And the, for those of us who uh, maybe are further along, maybe we accept the resurrection, maybe we believe that Jesus died and rose again. But we've kind of left it there. We've kind of never really um, tried to figure out what are the implications of that. Like, how does that affect my life? How do, I, how do I understand how this affects the way we witness, the way we think of the world, the way we think of everything? Well, I want to challenge you to something that would be a slightly um, more, um, you know, challenging read. And it's also back there. It's called Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright or N.T. Wright. And it's all about how the resurrection uh, affects the way we think of everything. And so I want to encourage, uh, there's two books, throwing it out to you. It's just one of the ways forward. But we've got to take the resurrection of Jesus seriously because it literally changes everything. And it certainly, as we think of the context of today's passage, changes the way that we think of our own lives and having witness and in the midst of difficulty. When we get solid in the resurrection of Jesus, we get solid in fearless faith. Well, that's, so first two, Jesus knows, Jesus rose. And the second one, a third one is 
in the midst of suffering, we can be thankful that Jesus will raise us again from the dead, obviously connected to his resurrection, but that he has promised resurrection life after faithful suffering. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, we will rise too. That's the promise in Scripture. Jesus is like the prototype. He's like the first fruit. He's the guarantee. Because it happened to him, it will happen to us. That's the story of the New Testament. When we look through history, when we hear stories of Christians who've died for their faith, whether it's way back then or whether it's today, if you see those people, if you hear those stories, you become convinced of this one thing, that knowing that Jesus will raise you again to life, knowing that this is not all it is, whether it's the lion coming toward you in an amphitheater in Smyrna, whether it's an ISIS militant or, or, or some overt pressure we're getting, whether it's other things that are happening, when you know that this is not all there is, when you know that resurrection is coming, it fundamentally changes the way you and I approach suffering and death. We can be thankful for our resurrection because it empowers, I think, both our life and our death. Well, do you have any questions? Thoughts? Um, this is kind of a heavy passage, I realize, but what questions might come up to you or comments? Something you'd like to add to the mix? Ethan is going to walk around with a wireless microphone, um, and that is both so those of us here today who maybe struggle with hearing can hear you, as well as a way that you can um, be heard on the podcast as well as people listen into the Revelation series. Anyone have a comment or question uh, you'd like to add to the mix? Morgan, right up here, uh, Ethan. Just wondering, are we, uh, are we just supposed to keep faith and accept suffering as part of the cost of being Christian? Like, when you read Luke chapter 22, it says right after Christ tells Peter that he'll deny him three times, he then goes on to tell everyone to uh, sell their cloak and buy a sword. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm just kind of wondering, like, how that ties into it. Like, at what point are we supposed to actually stand up for what's right to protect Christians like you see all this suffering and persecution in the world and then often if you have this conversation with Christians you get the response of like well no thou shalt not kill and uh, those who live by the sword die by the sword but then in in Luke he does say that so I'm just kind of wondering where that ties in so the question is really in a nutshell should we oppose uh, should we oppose violence with violence that is the question you're asking right um, just to be super clear. So we're asking, like, there's all this talk about suffering and, and martyrdom and, you know, uh, being faithful even to the point of death. At what point should a Christian say, I'm not taking this from these guys. Give me that sword. I'm fighting back. It's a tough one, right? We know that there's a variety of opinions on this one. Let me tell you what at least I think the revelation is pretty clear on. For the people in um, these churches, uh, for the people in these cities that were suffering this persecution, it seemed like what Jesus said to them very consistently through the book of Revelation, we're going to come back to this a number of times, is that the way they followed the slain lamb, which is the dominant image for Jesus that emerges in, in the, uh, the book of Revelation, that the way they faithfully follow him is going to be through sacrificial suffering. And so um, it's this call to be faithful like Jesus was faithful, which for them meant sometimes overtly dying, Sometimes it wasn't actual blood being shed, but you know, being in social situations and experiencing great difficulty because of their faith. That the, the consistent message through Revelation in particular was um, peeling back the curtain to see that there is a war going on and that the way the Lamb won the war was through his sacrificial death. That the Lamb didn't conquer by... By, by, as it were, coming down off the cross and destroying his enemies, that the Lamb conquered through death and then rose again. And so the invitation or the challenge to the, to the churches, to the church, is to follow the Lamb in the same way through sacrificial suffering. Now that seems to be very consistent through Revelation. Now, there's a lot of war, uh, sort of war, in Revelation. Not really a war, it's more like Jesus shows up and the war's over, but there's this image of, of war that's there. Um, but it's, it's, it seems to be not a war uh, where the people, uh, the, you know, they're, they're, they're wearing victorious robes of white. It's the, the battle is won 
through their sacrificial suffering. We'll, we'll get into more of that. The, the passage in Luke is pretty cryptic and strange. What we do know is Jesus didn't want his followers to fight. So the one, Peter, when he actually did cut the ear off the guy, was rebuked for it. The guy was healed, and then Jesus went to the cross and died at the hands of evil men, right? And so the, the call there seemed to be, again, it's a bit of an odd statement. He seemed to be suggesting we're in a conflict here, but he wasn't, uh, when you read the whole thing, he wasn't asking his disciples to take up arms against Rome. Rather, he was going to sacrifice himself uh, at the hands of Rome, right? Um, now, it's a, it's a big question that people are asking today around things like ISIS and others. Um, and I realize there's lots of geopolitical stuff that I really don't have the wherewithal to, to make big judgments on. What I do know is when Christians are in these situations, they're called, it seems very consistent to me, and very difficult to hear, they're called to follow Jesus in the way of the suffering lamb, who, who didn't, who, you know, put it this way, says, I'm not willing to kill you for my faith, but I'm willing to die for my faith. That seems to be the, the, the call that Jesus made to his people. And it's rooted in Revelation in the fact that it's the Lamb who has conquered through his suffering and his death. And so his people follow in the same way. Maybe we'll talk more about that. Thanks, Morgan. Yeah. I know it's not super satisfactory. It's awful painful. Other questions? Thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> no, not calling us the arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other, other questions or comments or thoughts today that you'd like to throw into the mix? Put your hand up and Ethan will bring... Steph. It's more of a comment than, than anything, but in a way we can sort of be jealous of where these people are at because after their sacrifice is done, they have quite the reward coming to them. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, not, not that I want to be beheaded for my faith, but in a way, what an honor to come to that point where you have to make that choice, and it's so apparent and so blatant that that's who you serve. And then to stand before your father and go, yeah, I did did this because I love you. And, you know, so. Yeah, I understand. I mean, the reality is we all are called to live out our faith and our allegiance to Jesus in the situation he's placed us in. And we, the, the revelation, um, there'll be a number of times, uh, like, for example, in the, in the opening, uh, the first scene of the seals are being broken, seals broken, and underneath the altar we see the souls of those who've been martyred and beheaded. And they cry out, how long? Like, how long, are you gonna, how, how long until you avenge our deaths, basically? And they're, and they're actually told to wait. They're going to wait a little longer until the full number uh, who, of those who are going to be martyred have, have come in. In other words, the suffering is going to continue. And, and so there's an awareness, and then we see others mentioned as we go through Revelation, this, this theme, you're right, the, really the, the, those who were, you know, came through that suffering and already were, um, were, were dead, but it's the design of it or the, the challenge of the book of Revelation is so that those who are still alive can, can look, not just death in the face, but actually look Jesus in the face in the midst of whatever situation they're in and continue to be faithful and so for some of these churches, it is very overt, like this, this Smyrna situation. But other churches, um, even, even in that area of Asia, it's not as overt. They're, they're not facing death. And in some ways, they're often in a more dangerous position. We all maybe didn't notice automatically, but this is the church Jesus doesn't say anything negative about. There's two of them he doesn't say anything negative about. This one is one of them. He has no word of rebuke for them. And uh, whereas some of the other churches that aren't facing this kind of overt persecution, they, they, they have some strong words Jesus wants to say to them. Yeah. Brooke? Just another one or two questions, and then we'll wrap it up. And you can get to your turkey. This is, Go ahead, Brooke. This is more a comment than a question. Um, it's, you know, it's, to think about being persecuted for the faith kind of freaks you out. Like, not going to lie. And... Uh, but the thing that's consistent that we've heard, um, I used to read Voice of the Martyrs a lot and attend some of their seminars and stuff, is in the midst of that moment when you look where you have that, that moment where you're being asked whether or not you're going to die for your faith, the strength of the Lord yeah. in you um, enables you to make those choices. And 
I think something that just what Brad had said earlier about the difficulty about living out our faith daily, mm-hmm. right? Like that in and of itself, sometimes we don't lean on the strength of Christ and we think of that as a, just a totally separate thing as being persecuted for our faith or living out daily the cost mm-hmm. of Christ. And I don't know, it, it, it speaks to me about Revelation when it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Right? We live under that blood, and the testimony of freedom that we have now, it will be the testimony that can carry us through persecution. That's right. Thank you. Anyone else want to, last one, last comment? It's just great to be with you. I'm Jeff Davis from England, and I've just stepped down as a pastor, but I'm still sharing Jesus, of course, after 40 years. But I was uh, just sharing this morning over breakfast. It was 40 years ago that my little boy died of of, uh, cancer, Mm. and I searched for the meaning and purpose of life. Mm -hmm. And um, he used to sing, and I, I uh, (laughs) I was telling Judy this morning, he used to sing, he was... Uh, almost three. He used to sing all things bright and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about, you know, uh, he gave us eyes to see with and lips that we might tell. And out of that, you know, for me to share my faith all the days of my life, to bring as many people to know and love Jesus as has been there and will be there. Yeah. And the other one he used to sing was Onward Christmas Soldiers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a battle. And during those 40 years, we've gone through an awful lot. But the one thing that's been important, which I needed to know, uh, was that Jesus was with me in this. Jesus knows uh, that he rose because I I needed to know I will see my son again Mm -hmm. one day. Now I'm 68, (laughs) or almost, right? And that because Jesus rose, I will rise again. So my little boy's ministry was Jesus allowed it to happen so that in and through that, I would come to know Jesus and share the good news with others. And it's lovely to come here and be with you today and see what God is doing six and a half thousand miles away from my home. Please look after my little girl and my grandchildren. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for sharing. That's great. And we will do our best to take care of Jesse and Nikki. They're a challenge, but we'll try. (laughs) Well, things did not get easier for this Smyrna church. In fact, uh, one of the young men in this congregation, maybe in his mid-20s, around the time when the the letter of Revelation was delivered, eventually he went on to be a pastor and a bishop in this community. His name was Polycarp. And about 60 years later, he was martyred because of his allegiance to Jesus in Smyrna. It kind of indicates to us that things didn't get better for the church in Smyrna. Things really did continue to to be a difficult, dangerous place. They continued to suffer. But what became of this church? Were they faithful? Did they last? Or did they eventually kind of buckle under? Well, it's very interesting to note that out of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, that Jesus addresses in Revelation, it's only this church that continued to exist, that still exists today. Uh, Only this church in poverty, this church in tribulation. In the modern city of Izmir, which is Smyrna, uh, faithful Christians have continued to follow Jesus, the first and the last, the one who died and rose again to life. Uh, They've continued to worship there for 1,900 years. It's Thanksgiving, right? We have so much to be thankful for. And I hope you'll take opportunities today or this weekend around meals or around friends and family to to express all the things we have to be thankful for. And though I don't know your particular situation, and I know we're from a variety of experiences, I don't know if, I know that some of you are in the midst of suffering. But I don't know. I don't know exactly what's going on for us. But what I do know is that Jesus knows. And that he wants you to know that he knows. He wants each one of us to hear his words today, promising the victor's crown, the reward of resurrection to all of us who will faithfully follow him, no matter what the pressure, no matter what the cost, that we will fix our eyes on Jesus and we will hear him say, be faithful. I am faithful, be faithful. Because really when it comes right down to it, 
Do we have anything that we can be more thankful for than Jesus, his presence among us, and his promise of resurrection life? Do we? I don't think we do. Let's say thanks to Jesus. Jesus, we are thankful today for your gift of life to us. We're thankful that you are present in the midst of our church. You're present in the midst of your people all around the world. That you know. We think today in particular of Christians, Christian families, Christian churches around the world who are in the kind of pressurized situations that we've even heard some about today. Places like northern Iraq. Places in Pakistan, other places, places where people are struggling and they're in the midst of pressure and there's so many reasons why they would just give up. And yet they have fixed their eyes upon you. They've had an apocalyptic vision of who you are in the middle of their situation and they're being faithful to you even to the point of death, even in deep places of suffering. And we ask today, that you would continue by your spirit to give them courage and grace and power. We do pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would walk with them. We pray that you would increase the power of their witness and that those who are oppressing them would hear the good news and would fall on their knees and and, and repent and, and, and ask to know more about this Jesus who loves them. We pray that you would increase the power of our witness worldwide. And today, Lord, for those of us who may be struggling in situations, marriage situations, work, I don't know, the different ways, but you know, I pray that we would have the courage to be faithful, even to the point of, maybe not literal death, but the suffering or the uncomfortability or the the difficulty that can come from being faithful, that we'd be faithful to that point, knowing that you are faithful to us to bring us through that you who rose again from the dead has promised us resurrection. And for that, Lord Jesus, we are so, so thankful. May your blessing rest upon us today as we leave. May we go with joy in our hearts, with courage in our veins, with your name on our lips. In your name we pray. Amen.